I was looking through a box of 90s rave flyers and found a um, found a 9-11 memorial rave headlined by Darude in Grand Rapids at a Whoa. laser tag arena. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I feel oh, like I, I've seen this flyer. I think, yeah, I think, you've, I think you, 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 you posted that, right? I it's did a, post it. I feel like I've seen you post that, yeah. That's... It is kind of the greatest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> let's go. Let's go back in time and go see Darude. <laughs> Yeah, can you just imagine being like... Where was this? Was this in Minneapolis? No, it was in like Grand Rapids, Michigan, oh, oh, or, oh, yeah, or like okay. Ann Arbor or something. Okay. Like that kind of, well, I don't think it was Grand Rapids, but my friend Jimmy had it in a box of his like, you know, 90s to now rave flyers. Okay. And we were looking through them because, you know, that shit, there's not like a big, I mean, there probably are, but there's not like a huge like online resource that gets like yeah. passed around of like old rave flyers especially like old midwest rave yeah yes yeah, it's, it's, um, it's surprising that there isn't like a like like you know uh rave archives like yeah yeah there's those like that series of coffee table books that i saw <laughs> recently that are like new york la there's and, a san like, francisco Area one that's been flyers. that's been reprinted okay. a whole times that, yeah that's like it's been pretty popular but surprisingly there's not a midwest one considering <laughs> chicago and detroit are kind of you know that whole like Everything. axis of everything apparently colin colin um, strange sent me a whole bunch of his old rave flyers which are amazing that's wow. awesome um including like yeah like like when spiral tribe played in new york Whoa. killer wow, yeah there were a bunch of old like drop base um like further party flyers in there and like that's you know great. the the like what, what was their old like triple x stunt cock porno rave or whatever the fuck <laughs> 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 Sounds like it's up Sean's alley. Sounds great. Yeah, it's um, like a Sean part right there. Yeah, <laughs> Dormouse was on the bill. Okay, so. yeah. Sure. Dormouse is there shoving meat up his too. ass. It's great. They actually, um, I think that might have been one of the parties. No, no, I mean he, that, that's what he used to do all the time. Yeah, all oh, the okay. time, like more than once. Well, when he would perform as Meat, which was a noise project he wow. had with maybe maybe another person was involved. But yeah. he would be on stage and just shove raw hamburger meat into his ass. Oh, Man. God. That's, that owns. doesn't sound hygienic. That reminds me of like, um, oh, there were, who was that one kid that used to do the fucking like slime enema, like live <laughs> noise set? Cocky uh, <laughs> SP? I think it, no, but it was definitely something adjacent to okay. Cocky SP. Or, yeah, that sounds it wasn't. Right. It definitely wasn't breakdancing Ronald Reagan, but it's something in that like same, like, like same kind of like everything is a joke costume noise right yeah right right so someone definitely did used to do like an enema full of like weird black slime and just shit it all over the floor wow and that was the thing always hardcore man that's the thing yeah yeah definitely that's hardcore i remember well i remember i mean like shredded nerves old stuff before he was like shredded nerve i I love i've known justin for like 10 years um he did that project like pus drainer or something and he would like pour like Gack all over himself. Wow! I liked it. Gack is sick. It was nice. It was. It was like, yeah. It, it was cute. Beta, 
episode six. This is your host, Chris Saldua, also known as CZ, also known as The Other Chris. I'm Sean. I'm Katie. I'm The Other Other Chris. <laughs> and I'd like to introduce our special guest, Aaron Ercola. What's up, Aaron? Not much. Um, it's Ercolia. But that's okay. Um, it's very nice to be on. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I DJ under the name Mix Silkman, and I produce music as Alton and Funeral Parade of Roses. It's good to have you on, Aaron. Thank you. Yeah, we've been wanting to have you on the podcast since we were formulating it. So yeah, oh, is... that's that's really sweet. Um, yeah, my reputation of just being able to absolutely talk shit for no. <laughs> <laughs> So, Aaron, you're part of a crew from Cleveland called In Training. Is that correct? Yes. I am one of the co-founders of In Training. Uh, me and Brian Bohan, father of two, uh, founded it in 2014, kind of seeking to establish a space of, like, I guess, autonomous nightlife that adhered to both challenging and uh, experimental electronic music, but also, like, grounding itself in the queer subculture of the larger LGBT, like, mainstream culture. And we were accompanied very quickly after by Shane Christian, who DJs as Kiernan Laveau, and um, a really good friend, Maya, who is a resident and a longtime, like, friend of the party. Uh, they DJ as Adab. And our collective also includes... Um, like performers Ghost Noises, who is kind of occupies the space between like hip hop, shoegaze, and like uh, like house music and ambient stuff. And Fauna, who does kind of, I guess like experimental electronic music and interpolations um, dealing with Kurdish heritage and various um, understandings of psychological and um ancestral memories so yeah we've been around since 2014 we started largely as an event series uh we were a monthly and i guess went on from there to kind of take on bookings as a collective do like media releases do physical album releases under various like production aliases and various other stuff to come in the future I guess. So. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about like um, what you're trying to build within training um, as a community, maybe. So that's kind of at this point a hard question to answer because the goals that we set out um, to establish something were deeply contextual about Cleveland, deeply contextual to the fact that it is a very poor city, a very kind of post-industrial city. A lot of people just caught up in service and retail jobs and kind of one that has an LGBT nightlife, but not something necessarily deeply queer that lied within like subcultural interests. The punk scene is pretty straight and heteronormative. You know, most other music subcultures around there are as well. So we kind of tried to establish a space once a month where we had complete control over the curation of the event, where we had enforced ideas about how we wanted to bring people into the fold of our community by keeping costs low, promoting an idea of like an inclusive atmosphere and one that people didn't have to like wait outside of like 
you know, the, there, there are nightclubs in Cleveland, but, you know, they book things like, you know, like Tiesto or stuff like that. EDM focused. Yeah. Like more of. like EDM or like kind of, yeah. EDM and tech house <laughs> and like there, or even like some of the LGBT bars and stuff in Cleveland, definitely, you know, there's some that have been called out various times for like racial profiling at the door and enforcing dress codes and stuff like that that specifically deter clientele that they find undesirable, um, n- mostly, you know, racialized queer people and stuff along those lines. Hmm. So we wanted to establish something in a space that we pretty much, short of renting a warehouse or renting a space um, kind of out of the blue, because we had never really done this before, um, we, we just kind of went to the DIY scene and we took up in a punk club that has been around for 12 years now in Cleveland called Now That's Class. Um, it's just a kind of dingy punk club, very cool room. Used to be an old like drag bar uh, going back to the 70s and 80s. It was like in the gay community for years and years as like a kind of like tavern and like party space and a spot where they did drag shows and dance parties. And I don't know, we just kind of slowly inserted ourselves into that scene and brought forth this idea of creating something different and creating something that pushed boundaries um, both in terms of what we wanted a crowd to look like what we wanted our lineups to look like and generally like what going out as like you know a person like an lgbt person in cleveland could be (laughs) Mm-hmm. Right, so it's, it's just sort of continuation of uh, of of that DIY ethos that you're you're yeah. you're creating a, a space outside of outside of established norms, uh, both kind of sonically and culturally. Yeah, stuff that specifically pulled us both outside the focus of doing things in what would normally be thought of as a nightclub space, right? And also like outside of the typical idea of what like an LGBT club would be. And so you've, how did you come to techno? I, I got into a lot of stuff through, I guess, more like minimal synth and like Galactoro. Um, I used to be active in like industrial noise and experimental music back in the day. Uh, this was kind of before I came out um, as trans. And it's something that, you know, I was fairly well established in that scene. But it's something that I still have friends who operate in that scene, but by and large, like, kind of took a step back from as, like, I figured that sort of stuff out about myself. Hmm. Um, I think in exploring things that were inherently more for social enjoyment, um, I think minimal synth was, like, a pretty easy wave. Not to, not, not to derail, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on the evolution of this thread of music uh particularly in the midwest because uh, what i experienced in new york was obviously fairly different but the right. the, the thread going from you know, noise and power electronics mm-hmm. to to minimal synth and then into techno um how like how, how did how do these shifts occur what do they, what do they look like in the midwest so i think Outside of like Detroit and Chicago, um, just being the, some of the largest Midwest cities, there weren't as mu- there wasn't as much of a minimal synth revival there. Okay, um, like there were people who kind of went directly from 
industrial noise to kind of more like techno forms without like kind of stopping in the middle. Yeah. Um, that stopgap point. Of like, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would say like something cold in Detroit was like one of the most influential parties. Yeah. Um, especially like when we started doing in training, like something cold and weird and like something cold, weird, honcho. They, they like pushed this underground ethos and like a very kind of like bare bones ethos that like you could kind of see coming apart at the seams on the outside of it, but <laughs> was still like, yeah, you know, in, in like a very endearing way, not yeah. in a way that was like, you know, this looks like shit. You know, this is like a bullshit, like loft party <laughs> that people are like DJing at, like for no reason. The line, the, 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 the line between radical transparency and not giving a fuck can be pretty thin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, yeah I, I think too, like, I mean, people were definitely like, there were, there were definitely people who were making like minimal synth in the Midwest and stuff, but I, I think it didn't take as much as it did in like larger cities where the resources for that kind of project maybe exists more mm-hmm. like specifically like a lot of the hardware right um like which i know is like kind of a maybe a silly thing to say but like so much of that music is like dedicated to like the obsessive at least the revival of it is like dedicated in a lot of ways to like the obsessive focus of like that particular sound generated from oh I, th- I, th- I think i think that's that's totally a valid critique um absolutely yeah it, but, it was yeah. like a thing that could exist in cities where there were <laughs> you know music resale shops or synth shops or stuff or boutiques that had that or like a pool of musicians still right. around that had access to all that that's interesting i guess i've never really considered that 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 there's a like a literal geographic sort of component to some of this kind of music well, yeah and, and a, a, like a class one as well too like this stuff isn't yeah. isn't free it's a lot easier to make music on a 200 dollars laptop than it is on you know twenty thousand dollars worth of cents uh, yes i, I use 140 dollars laptop <laughs> <laughs> props <laughs> yeah and you make you you make better music than me on a uh, 20 grand a gear so <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, you record music as Auton, right? It, yes, I do. Um, Auton is... Is, is the, that a newer project for you? You've been... Yeah. yeah um, okay. I started producing as Auton in like probably December 2017. Okay. Um, and kind of have been writing um, various like releases as Auton since then. Okay. Uh, the first of which is out on Jack Tone Records. Um, it's an album entitled La Lada Continua, which is, I guess, kind of a musical character study or rather like a musical exegesis of the Italian autonomous movement and its concurrence with the Red Brigades <laughs> in 1960s and 70s the, Italy. The, the years um, of lead in Yeah, Italy. the years of lead. When you say um, autonomous movement, can you clarify what that means? Um, they were kind of, they, they were a Marxist, like a very much a Marxist movement, but one that did not run um, directly 
guided by the Italian Communist Party. Right. Um, they uh, were a party. Just, just to quickly mention, um, I noticed that you met, you used autonomous to describe um, how you approached um, curating or forming in training, and now it comes up again. So I'm just curious, like, is there a link there? And and the, what do you what what do you mean when you say autonomous? So I guess in the kind of uh, classical political sense, the idea of like autonomism came out of theorists like Antoni Negri and Mario Tronti who were primarily theorists involved with Autonomia Operaia, which was an Italian class struggle-oriented Marxist group. I, I guess it was like kind of organized more from the ground up, um, as opposed to like having a rooting in like an actual political party system. Because the Italian Communist Party in the 70s was actually, in the 60s and 70s, was actually like a parliamentary party. Right. Like, oh, yeah. it, was, it was a real thing. Yeah, they, they held like a minority share of a party. And one of the big things that kicked Autonomy Operaia and the Red Brigades into kind of a protracted um, war and refusal of cooperation with, you know, um, society and work was the Italian Communist Party um, and the Christian Democrat Party, which is kind of like the centrist to conservative party of that era of Italian politics, um, forming an alliance that granted them a parliamentary majority in Italian parliament. Um, and this was done kind of, you know, with all the uh, tacit endorsement of the higher levels of all the trade unions, which basically like the trade union structure, like kind of directly fed into the Italian Communist Party, the PCI at that point. And the, you know, the people that were members of this union and the students who were facing uh, unemployment and underemployment, uh, much like now. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, you know, Marxist academics who felt uh, put off by the kind of political vanguardism and parliamentary nicety of the Italian Communist Party, um, who, who were very much coming out of a tradition established by the Situationists in their leftist evaluation of Marxism without grounding it in the uh, grounding it in the state or in forms of Marxism that included like the state and military power of like Lenin and Stalin. Um, autonomism kind of was a growth out of that confluence of disenfranchisement from vanguard party politics. So it was almost, and this might be wrong, but it was almost an anarchist kind of approach? It, it, it's kind of seen as like a kind of... Is it syndicalist? Maybe. Yeah, like like vaguely like syndicalist, but not like directly feeding into like a unionist model like how right. CNT does. All right. So for, for listeners, so syndicalism is, is sort of the political, uh, I don't know, uh, theory that sort of foregrounds uh, workers and unionism, um, trade unions uh, in French, syndicat. Um, it's the sort of political wing that would sort of funnel... A lot of uh, politics through a union structure. Is that 
Right. Yeah. Yeah, like establishing a larger union of general working right. class people um, that would control directly all the profits and labor that they create and use that as a way to achieve power often through, you know, syndicalism. Like syndicalism. So the IWW is a good example of right. like the the uh, experiment of syndicalism, at least in the United States. Right. Um, the idea of like forming a large union to have a collective bargaining, not only with uh, your active workplace, but a larger kind of collective bargaining that can eventually establish a general strike. Um, right. And big ups to the IWW. Uh, we are recording this on May Day. And uh, just May before Day. coming here, I was I was at a protest with IWW and DSA and another great. Did you see that guy get egged? By the way, no, I didn't see anyone get egged. Uh, some uh, some New York City neo Nazi who was like doing the whole like anti communist thing got fucking egged today. Nice. <laughs> was that today? Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I guess I missed it. Um, Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> gotta look out. No, get on okay. the blogs. <laughs> there are, I mean, there are like you know, I mean, this is New York, the home of uh, the Proud Boys, and 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 sort of a lot yeah. of uh, bizarro, you know. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 out there for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's out there, and so uh, that's always present in the in you know when when you go out to these uh, demonstrations and things. To, when you go to Santos Party House, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you you worry that the that the venue got doxed on 4chan, you know. Oh yeah, deeply. Yeah. Well, uh, I think I I have a I have a good opportunity to bring it back to techno. Um, in our in the last conversation that we had with Ben, um, he mentioned how his kind of um, party organizing and the party that he throws called Technox out in Knoxville mm-hmm. is in many ways a kind of grassroots from the ground up expression of leftist sentiment yeah. and i'm wondering do you feel something similar within training like sure how does leftist politics inform techno and inform what you have done so for, first of all yeah shout out technox because that that is a very great crew um i loved playing their party nice um, where do i think leftism and techno intersect intersect i guess it's kind of it's kind of hard to say because it's pretty contextual on i think the intentions that a lot of artists have with it um i think and the spaces they're playing too yeah exactly yeah i think like the techno of people you know like the creators of techno in detroit who specifically did set out to who some of them like most notably like underground resistance who set out to create a um, radical political statement within techno, I think is very different than techno created by, I mean, I'm sure he's a fine person, but like Adam Bayer. (laughs) Yeah. Like, like, yeah. Drum code and underground resistance are apart. (laughs) Let's be clear. I mean, mean, just like in general, like I, I think, that, it's kind of a, a bit of a morass for getting into because I think that nothing is inherently imbibed with leftism or with yeah. uh, general like kind of anti-capitalist or anti-authoritarian for sure nature without 
that intention being spoken into existence. For sure. For sure. So, I mean, so in training, you know, really foregrounds the, the fact that it is a space for LGBTQ, queer party. And I want to pick your brain on, on that sort of intersection between that and leftism because to me, I see a lot of uh, clubs and a lot of places now talking about that they're whatever, a, a safe space, and they're using a lot of these sort of, a lot of vocabulary of inclusivity. You oh, know, you, you, like and explicitly using a lot of like the language of the left. Explicitly it, using a lot of language of the left. In this of, sort of like but in a very club environment. Yeah, in a, in a club environment where, you know, they are still being super, uh, I mean, like some of the places you mentioned, they're still racially discriminating at the door in very subtle ways, even though they say that everyone's welcome, um, right. you know, and they're doing that through uh, cover prices. They're doing that through drink prices being exorbitantly high. Um, they're, you know, doing it. They're doing you know, it through like, you know, geographical access. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that idea is something that I've kind of, been wrestling with for a few days um kind of in preparation of thinking of like kind of what i really want to say on here and i guess to understand it you have to have an understanding both of subculture and the way that monoculture cannibalizes subculture and the (laughs) elements of it that um they find um, non-distasteful to the reproduction of capital and the reproduction of, like, resources. What exists in LGBT spaces is that there is the general idea that there are LGBT people. There are people of various um, sexual orientations, gender expressions, that come together in this kind of community of interest that does not always have a confluence, um, but like it or not, they're kind of all there together. And that's LGBT, a mainstream culture within a larger mainstream culture. Queer subculture, to me, is something that is an inherently subcultural value within a larger LGBT scene. We can talk about the ideas of like, who gets to decide what the signifiers of what is queer subculture are. Right. How is that reflected in the way people look or don't look outwardly queer or don't outwardly embody gender and sexuality expression to both each other and to the larger mainstream world for either issues of presentation or protection, their own survival, their own inability to not be able to hide that about themselves and how it potentially victimizes them but is rewarded in smaller spaces. Queerness, without getting too like authoritative because I, I don't believe that I am particularly qualified as a um, as like a white trans woman, um, particularly qualified to define queerness, but queerness is something that is an inherently maybe an inherently more political grasp of LGBT identity that rejects actively and challenges the 
implied goal of reproductive futurism within a heteronormative society. Um, and idea, all that goes along with that. Right, yeah. yeah. The idea of negation, I think, and the idea of being unable to really be seen as, you know, to, to be seen as queer for a very long time was to be seen as being unable to do anything but fuck uselessly and die. <laughs> and, like, in the literal sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, to fuck for no purpose and to to die, to be a victim of either structural or very real violence. Right. Right. Because you, 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 you literally have no use to capital if you're not reproducing and not, not able to work. Right, exactly. I read it in the Baden Journal of Queer Nihilism, but I believe they were quoting people like Gita Hawkingham and uh, like some of the more like French queer insurrectionists that had come before that were establishing this idea of queerness as the inherent rejection of um, the inherent rejection of capital and one's ability to participate in it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if everyone's articulating that in their idea of queerness, but today, you know, that can look like from a political angle, like intentionally rejecting ideas of gender, intentionally rejecting ideas of how gender presentation or how like outward presentation reflects gender as like a person as a person's identity like gendered subjects do not necessarily always reflect a presentation and vice versa that the presentation of a gendered subject does not always accurately reflect what they hold to be true about their their identity and what affirms them it's the idea of understanding that gender in and of itself is largely a product of deep patriarchal enforcement that is inseparable from white supremacy, is inseparable from colonialism, and it's inseparable from capitalism. Um, it's something that was violently enforced on not only, you know, white queer people who are often seen as the kind of face of this, like, radical queerness or something, but definitely through the wide reaches of colonialism and capital and white supremacist racialization of people um, in you know, non-white communities, that gender is something projected deeply onto cultures that may or may not have had working understandings of gender in the same way that you know, the very like white supremacist patriarchal and like Christian faith of European society would have like colonized into those people. Sure. Yeah. You see this in, you know, particularly vicious effect in places like Uganda or places like in Southeast Asia, where um, you have a lot of cultures that were kind of just doing their own thing. And once, uh, you know, Western European, uh, capital and uh yeah christianity plays a, a small role in this as well um it really changed these societies and and made them uh just Absolutely. created a lot of violence it did and you know it's not something and you know obviously it's not something even limited to just those it's something that the transatlantic slave trade uh, yeah of course yeah, rigidly yeah. controls and enforces into um 
into people that were subjected to, you know, the very like livestock um, enforcement of gender and reproductive, like having like gender and reproductive autonomy and even physical autonomy like stripped from them. Right. Um, so w- without getting too deep into that, I think probably about uh, like probably like five or five to ten years ago, maybe as queerness by and large, you know, acting as that kind of modern subculture, probably in its most visible form and its most potent form since probably the like end of the AIDS crisis, I would say. Um, queerness became kind of a viable progressive value for I think a lot of companies to kind of soften their unspoken distaste for or at least like soften their idea that these people are useless to the goals of capitalism right I wanted to ask um Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. This is such a long fucking answer. No, no, this is great. This no, no, is, no, this, is, this is this is awesome. Um, I, I just wanted to ask um, how you think um, queerness, just sort of getting it back a bit to like music, how you think it plays, you know, your sort of working definition of queerness, how that plays into the party and musical atmosphere uh, beside, aside from the, and beyond the sort of uh, typical... Uh, notions of you know the sort of safe space and i also wanted to add to that about like your own experience regionally um Mm. in cleveland and in the midwest like um what those things that you were just talking about like what is what what is it like to have this kind of experience in that region i guess to kind of get right into that we're in this space where queer subculture is very visible and very like potent and kind of conjuring an image and a lifestyle and a set of values that corporations, either in you know their real estate holdings, such as large clubs, or their media companies, or their patronage, kind of like corporate patronage outlets, um, recognize that queer subculture is a value. So, so basically what we see in... Um, the last like five or ten years is dance music kind of reflecting the vi- the values of capitalism from like a, a large structural standpoint where they recognize that among other subcultures the queer subculture is one that provides a set of signifiers and values that recall a lifestyle um, that is a, a marketing angle for people to to capitalize on to be commodified really right to to be commodified in like club experiences yeah because there are people from like the bottom up doing these parties out of the necessity of you know creating a space for their subculture creating a space that has these values and, and these intentions imbued in them as part of its function um, either large corporations through their real estate holdings, um, which, you know, manifest in clubs, uh, especially in like coastal cities where real estate is an extremely vital part of whether it's an established club or the ability that one has to do a warehouse venue and how that kind of factors into real estate and changing dynamics in neighborhoods. 
whether it's through real estate holdings, um, media corporations, like media content, or their, um, or even like corporate patronage situations like those that we've seen recently, queer subculture is something that can be commodified. You know, corporations are not, you know, they're not stupid, they're, they're mundane, and they know that, you know, probably something that caught on through the Gen X thing is that there is this idea of authenticity that people are highly suspect of. Yeah. Um, so, but also know, chasing after. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's, th- there's also this, this long running notion of progress as well that like, you know, right. Yeah. We live in the idea. most progressive right. age that ever that, existed that, that, that right. th- through capital we can, we can, you know, totally you know, ignoring all history. Yeah. It's the right. history right. of <laughs> the history of gender dynamics, uh, throughout all of right. recorded human history, throughout yeah. all cultures. I mean, we we live in so far from the most progressive era and you know yeah i mean it's it's definitely like this establishment of like look look how diverse and queer our society is like we you know we let these we let these cute little faggots like live and like have their fun <laughs> right yeah, and yeah we don't totally annihilate them on like every just sometimes other, it's <laughs> unlike all the savages surrounding us um, which is totally not something that any any world government has ever used to kind of justify their existence and their like neo-colonial powers in regions of the country by establishing this kind of like xenophobic jeopardizing of queer people. Right. It it uses our sort of ignorance of history and culture to say, okay, well you got to thank capitalism though, because otherwise it'd be even worse. I, I guess here's a question. So if, 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 if queer culture defines itself in, in to, to at least some degree as a space that, that operates outside of and is rejected by capital, now that capital is finding this something that is vi- viably commodifiable, where does queer culture go? It's hard to say. I mean, there, there are two ways to go about it. Um, one definite direction is that queer culture, or queer subculture participants need to need to wisen the fuck up. (laughs) They need to recognize that the kind of specifically talking about like the establishment of like this idea that like the club can be a safe space. Right. Um, It's not a bad thing to strive for. It's something that we've strove for in doing parties. It's something that I think a lot of good, well-intentioned people do, but it's also understanding that, you know, the construction of a safe space is something that comes out of this language of restorative justice and inherently non-carceral solutions to, you know, communities taking care of themselves. Yeah. And a club is not invested in the idea of... A community taking care of itself. Yeah, of like, of like a self-policing community that doesn't inherently involve, you know, throw... Like, like calling the police on someone right who this is, is right, like yeah. you 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 go to say any number of clubs in brooklyn and it's like hey this is a safe space full of cops it's a safe space <laughs> yeah. where you will be totally um police gouged uh in drink prices <laughs> and everything you know it's a safe space well, except a, for your wallet space. it's a safe space full of you know the trappings of capitalism one of which are you know the the very like kind of Oh yeah, it's, it's expensive. It limits access, but then there's also like the element of, you know, security is armed. They're yep, allowed right. to enact violence on 
people who can't necessarily they will they, know, will, they will search they will search you with a whim if they want to they will you know right they'll they'll search you they'll repli- they'll replicate the um, the violence of the state and the violence of the carceral kind of system and if you really piss them off they will call in the people who have guns yeah. that actually can kill you uh, indiscriminately which is something that I think you know is really where the the safe space for a non-white club goer really falls apart. You know, you can't sit and have these like kind of mediated conflict conversations in the kind of very like capitalized setting that has adopted this, you know, language of a very non state oriented process. And the answer is just to call in the violent, um, the violent reproducers of state and those who maintain the boundaries of what is acceptable. Yeah. A, or i.e. the police. And I, and I think it's something that a lot of people like let clubs off the hook for. So so I do think that that's like one way that queer people have have to move forward. Like what what does safety look like for a white queer person versus what does safety look like for a person for whom gender is less forgiving because right. you know nothing is forgiving for them. Right. Uh, the, the other thing that I know a lot of queer people seem to want to do is establish these kind of spaces of autonomy um, and like bring back the ideas of like these raves and like undergrounds and stuff. And I, I think that's really admirable. And I, I wish that there was more of a space to do that in Cleveland because there isn't really. Um, we've tried it. It's hard. Like it, it's not just like no, no, no loft spaces or warehouse spaces that are really tenable. It's just, it's largely not tenable. It also in Cleveland specifically, it wasn't working for a lot of reasons. One of the main ones is that, like, there weren't really all night parties at any point in time since the '90s. <laughs> so, like, the trouble of going, like, going to all the trouble of like having this established in like a warehouse kind of space, um would have diminishing returns after two, like 2 AM. Right. So because, was, because there's no kind of like enduring culture of nightlife, like night, nightlife there. Do you mean, or yeah, not, not particularly, it's just, it's, it's just, it's, an, not, it's, a, it's an early city. You mean then basically it's just people, people go yeah, to bed at two. Go to bed early. Yeah. Like they got to go home and jerk off in the shower and fucking watch like Leno or something. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Yeah. <laughs> Truly oh, yeah. a safe space. Love, love in the shower and pushing it down the drain. With yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Quality it's it's right one there. of the few, um, one of the few lasting things that I can enjoy in my life as I slowly sterilize myself. Towards- <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. I guess I guess w- just w- one one more quick question here on on, on this topic. Like, uh, do do you think like a uh, do you think it's possible for a a commercial club to be a safe space uh, at all? I mean, like in saying yes, I contradict like everything that I kind of have laid out, and in saying no, I also kind of <laughs> it, well, in, say, in saying no, I also like kind of undo a lot of the work that me and my friends have tried to do for years yeah it's a uh, double bind fuck them I'll, I'll say no yeah, I, I don't, I don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't think that's really like that outlandish I mean we tried we tried to do the best we could you know in, in that sense it's something that we you know pushed you know for harm reduction in the club which 
like you know that that was probably one of the last things we tried to do um was to push for you know fentanyl test strips and for narcan um to be present in the club or at least get you know at least get something kind of established what what i've been hearing from you aaron which kind of has been the running theme on this show so far is like what does it mean for a subculture to maintain itself and what does it mean for subcultures to succeed such that they become subsumed into monoculture how do people who are dedicated to subcultures of any kind how do they make space for themselves in the world without compromising everything they that they believe in um honestly i don't, I don't think they do i i don't think I, I think it's a bit of a holdover of like this idea of like per, like pursuing an ideal of authenticity to understand that you can like live this kind of morally pure life. Mm. I think it's something that people still try to do a lot. I think it's why there's um, such vicious uh, to the point of like nearly like carceral mindset self-policing within queer spaces mm. um, that, that, you know, often draw the ire of people watching from the sidelines. Right. Um, and, like, I think that stuff is well-intentioned, but I think it's, like, kind of trying to approach this idea of purity that is a lot of, you know, not wanting to be a bad person, yeah. which I think is a pretty normal thing. Yeah. I think it's also, like, wanting to stick to a kind of moral imperative in a world that does not allow for moral imperatives and grand answers and grand designs right, to explain right. the conditions of modernity. I've right? gotten sort of, I, I've noticed that it frustrates me that it seems right now, at least that everyone wants to be a fucking cop. And I understand <laughs> like holding people accountable like that. But to me, that seems like a very different, um, that that's different from the sort of way I, I feel like it's expressed where people tend to just kind of express their, like, like you were saying about a community self-policing. Um, right, like expressing their grievance of a person um, and then like that person becomes exiled rather than like actually trying to achieve some sort of accountability that like helps the survivors of this person's behavioral transgression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's because it's hard for people raised in a deeply uh, carceral society such as ours to imagine for sure correction and alternative um, yeah. yeah an alternative this is this is this is how justice works kind of uh, on, on a fundamental exactly. level for it's us how you're taught that it that yeah like you yeah, you you, it's, you it's, punish you punish people yeah um, right yeah like you you punish people you kick them out of your space they go to berlin for six months and then they come back and everything's fine <laughs> <laughs> I think I, th I think we we discussed this a bit elsewhere on the podcast too, but I think a lot of times it's also just um, people it's desperately exercise control over any facet of their life that they feel like they have control over. Right. So you know, oh, they're powerless. Yeah. Yeah. Every other yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like, yeah. Um, I think we have no control over what we do on a daily do basis. This, you know. Yeah. I think queer people do this largely out of um, a hypervigilance because they have been so largely traumatized and betrayed by well, society, but by their peer groups growing up, 
by their families in a lot of cases. And then, you know, it's, it's hard to, um, it's hard to kind of comprehend like what allowing someone to, you know, within reason, obviously, you know, to hurt someone or transgress someone and like understand the consequences of their actions and be accountable looks like. Right. Um, I, I don't think we as a culture in a lot of ways have much of an idea of what being accountable looks like. It certainly isn't prison. Prison yeah. is does not like prisons do not, you know, Work. breed accountability out of people who, you know, commit crimes. They yeah. simply just subject them to, you know, further further trauma and further yeah. and disenfranchised members of a labor force of a labor force, regardless if they committed, you know, a violent crime or a crime that was merely a crime against uh, the established rules of capital um, and like that and like values and property. It, you know, we, we don't have those solutions. people who are making a living off this and like all power to them like that's fucking awesome i hate work um <laughs> and like i think it's cool that people can do this you know for ostensibly a little while and like not have to go back to a like a real nine to fiver thing and like i think that's really cool um i think there is a lot of just like kind of projective resent that um it, it's weird it's it's resent at queer people for being commodified rather than like for their lives being actually better because like it's right. a total mystery like, like i know yeah. everyone's like really attached to the i know everyone's really attached to the like you know I'm, I'm like like queer people are like born this way or like i was born in the wrong body sort of thing but like i don't know i mean like you can choose to be like fucking gay if you want like you can go for it like it's like it's right there yeah. like right it's, it's like, like suck a dick man yeah like, <laughs> like go for it like just go off like, <laughs> like but i mean it's not gonna make your life any better like you, the, there might be a couple better memes or something but like but, yeah but like it's not like you know, no, no one who previously wasn't booking you um, to play at like Jupiter Disco, or like Sis or something, um, is is gonna be knocking on your door, being like, "Hey, I heard you like sucked a dick the other day. I think that's really fucking cool and progressive of you. That's really fucking brave." But it's worth trying. Clothes. It's worth trying. You know. Um, you so like, as well, you know. Yeah, like, I, I think that like the idea of like becoming non-binary for like clout or um, yeah it's it's it's, it's being, crazy. being trans for clout which is the best fucking thing i've ever heard right it's like, it's like, I, like i don't even have that part of a life as like a trans person like i'm not out at work so i get misgendered every day um constantly for eight hours a day of my life and you know like i don't have that bad of a life i i certainly don't have as bad of a life as some white trans people that i know and definitely not compared to almost every trans person of color that I know. Right. Um, so like, it's not that 
much better, but it still fucking sucks. <laughs> and like, you know, like, like you do lose a certain amount of like autonomy trying to exist as like a trans person um, within like the medical kind of capitalized state. Like you don't get to be recognized as a trans person without convincing your doctor that you want to be on hormones and I'm on hormones. And the trade-off for that is, you know, you have to be, you have to fucking sterilize yourself with hormones. <laughs> so like I've, you know, been a year and a half in and probably sterile now. And I mean, that's fucking cool. Cause fuck them. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean like there, there's not that many benefits. I mean, it's like, it's like, what what are the real benefits of it? It's like I, I get to uh, I can go to like Honcho camp out and like you know some queen can come up next to me and be like, "There's a lot of fucking." Oh, I'm not gonna actually say a T slur on your guys' show. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pump the brakes there for a second. But, yeah, yeah. But like like the, the advantages are kind of few and far between, and I think there's just like a lot of like weaponized resent that that's just like kind of childish um right. on all levels because i've heard it from a lot of people and i heard it was a a subject out here like where people apparently have heard mutterings about like oh non-binary people are like faking it it's like yeah it's cool to fake that shit like that's like there's so many better things to fake like <laughs> fake f- fake being a cis white guy that'll that'll get you far yeah i do Isope drift? Yeah. I've always pronounced so, it isope drift. I've I've a friend who pronounces it pr- pronounces it isopy, which I think is wrong. That, 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 that that's that's wrong. So yeah, I, that's, I pronounce it Uh yeah, I believe it's isope drift. Yeah. Um I I mean just kind of the uh general song or the the, the production duo of um is it D Blaze and uh is it it's ronald ronald s right yeah 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 d blaze and ronald s who are i think probably most cultishly known for isope drift they're i I think they're i think they're definitely best known for obscurum dom are they okay yeah i think it's pretty no no, the the track dom is pretty i I think pretty much by far their most uh their 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 best known record uh, it was, yeah. it was, it was like I mean, it was, it was a mix of that as well. So. Yes. It was, it was a very popular hard minimal nineties, uh, cut. Oh, okay, cool. So who, who are these people? They're just two fucking guys. They're huh. just two like German dudes. I mean, like they're the, the, I think what's kind of like intriguing about them is they're like kind of, I mean, they're, they're very accomplished. Like they're very competent and capable producers who, had all these aliases that are all slightly different to the point where I, I kind of can't tell if they just intentionally kind of like had a bunch of aliases to pad out the largeness of their label. Um, I think that was a pretty or, common thing in the nineties. Like, I mean with, for instance, like, like, uh, like Mark Cartapane with the mover. Yeah. I, I mean, like, he, he, he sounds like he is producing as 30 different people and 
that is a, that that's a musical feat in and of itself. But but it it was definitely done with the intent of making his label seem like it was a big thing. Yeah, like a bunch yeah, of yeah, like the various artist comp that's eight different tracks from eight different projects that are just those two guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, 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 but um, but at the same time, no no two of them, with the exception of like maybe like tungsten and shallow, like no two of them sound like really super identical to the point where it almost seems like they have rules about like what each project kind of is and what it kind of isn't. Um, I, I think what's so cool about it is just that like they kind of exist in that space where like no one really knows that much about them. There's like a few people who know them. Like I know like Fanon Flowers like did releases on their label yes. and vice versa and um, apparently Fanon has a bunch of their like unreleased isope drift stuff. So I've please that yeah. King, put that out. Um, Fanon flowers, by the way, someone who absolutely does not get hailed for just the utter brilliance of so many of their like nineties, hard Detroit minimal. Absolutely. Records. Absolutely. Kalamazoo scene is incredible. Um, yeah, yeah that, the Kalamazoo, the Jay Denham, uh, Black Nation, like yeah, that Nexus, D- of, D- like, D- Dinox, uh, in- incredible, yeah, incredible. Man. Um, yeah, all, all that stuff is like that kind of like tier below like the uh, huge, huge name like Detroit All Stars. Like they were all really good, but they were all just kind of like pushing things to an extremity in a way that like did not make them as palatable but like still are like enduring and kind of timeless. I mean, it's like, look at Charles Knowles music as like archetype coming back in like such a big way now, like that stuff still sound, sounds pretty, pretty fresh and pretty recent and new. And a lot of it was made in like 1994 or 19 or like between like <clears throat> 2000 that is being put out now. Yeah. So let's, let, let, um, let's, let's loop back to uh Iso drift, drift. Um, yeah. So yeah. So so you 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 picked in particular the Tool Jean EP, I think. Yeah. Um, was the one that you first yeah. heard that really struck you? Yeah, I, I think it was just like I mean, it was kind of a process of how people discover things a lot these days, which is which is literally seeing Shane English post them on Facebook. Um, but just seeing people post like YouTube uploads and this huge archive of music that like YouTube has become of like a lot of stuff that really is uploaded for no real reason other than just posterity. Like there's obviously like the kind of like advertory, like our advertising function of like, yeah, I mean, I I think, I think people actually now do post stuff on YouTube with the intent of, of generating money. They do. I mean, if you look at generating ad money, um, like, like, like the, the hate, uh, the hate, um, basically, yeah. They right. they now charge. Is is it correct? I I know I've heard, I've heard from a couple of people. They now charge for you to have their like for for them to post your tracks. Oh, um, I I don't really know anything about them. I mean, I, uh, that's also kind of a world of techno that I'm not entirely a part of. Like, I, I'll play tracks by like some of the people that are. I'll obviously like play tracks by people that are on those channels. It's kind of cool that like. Specifically, Isoap Drift is stuff that I think really recalls this sound of like post-industrial alienation. And it's like very sparse and very minimal. 
but not in a way that's like a lot of the contemporary minimal sound of the time was. It's kind of more of a blueprint. I think probably the only thing that it's really similar to is what, like, Mika Vigno, Techno. Well, yeah, so yeah. I mean, this record came out on the label Seiko, Seiko Core. Core, which... Which is a direct send-up, yes. yeah. That's what I was wondering, I, yeah, because I'm, I'm new to a, a lot yeah, of no, what no, we're I talking mean, about. The, the, is that the, an actual reference to Sako? It is. I'm pretty sure okay. it's a Sako reference, yeah. Um, the, 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 the project is, is absolutely exactly in between downward early downwards and 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 you know classic Sako. Uh, right clearly their two main reference points um which i i think is cool because they they did it kind of at the same time as contemporaries um but like if you listen to their stuff like now it, it is kind of cool that they are this strain of industrial soundings like industrial sounding things kind of a little more so than like some of the Sako stuff that I've heard. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. That does not seem to carry with it like direct influence of like EBM. It's not like EBM. Right, right. It's it's like completely outside of the front two four two frontline assembly sort of. Yeah, the quake, vein. the quake three techno. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it, it 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 comes straight from SPK. Basically, it's 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 yeah, right. it, it is very right. purely industrial. Uh, as well it, it is it's like not overwrought it, it it focuses i think less so on the uh it's kind of weird talking about this in like 2019 even like i don't think they knew going into making these tracks that their stuff could be really considered much in 2019 yeah um but yeah the the fact that it's industrial sounding music that speaks to deep direct mindsets of industrialism that is not inherently imbibed with a lot of the signifiers of industrial subculture or like the spectacle of industrial dance music which yeah. um you know when that revival came through i i think i mean it's still pretty big i guess like i think i think I, I think it's just it's bigger than ever i think it just continues to get bigger I think, yeah, I think maybe I just stopped paying attention to a lot of it. Because, yeah. Like future pop type stuff? Like, no, like, I maybe, I, I or, think maybe more, I mean, like, Dalek Nama and Vitor Gabe. Oh, yeah, know. that shit. Yeah, that, I mean, that's just becoming a, yeah, a whole brand. It's, it's just, like, very big. Isn't that stuff getting played on, like, festivals kind of now? Yeah, or? and I mean, there's there's those, like, uh, Amsterdam warehouse parties. What's that one? Reactor. Catharsis. Cathar Reactor, yeah. Reactor is, yeah. yeah, Catharsis is one of Reactor's parties. Okay, I played yeah. I played for them a couple times. It's insane. Yeah, uh, I me mean, too. It's like a overwhelming yeah, it's, thing. It's a lot. I mean, that that stuff is all cool. Um, it, it's all like very like kind of like blade blood rave techno. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I that, that that stuff just got so played out to me. I just I can't even. I can't really stand it anymore. Well, I think what's interesting about that stuff is that it it's like a direct kind of send up of that sort of industrial sound that was really hot from like what 83 or so to the mid 90s like what do you mean like like the kind of wax tracks uh, just, yeah. Yeah, just, you, you just mean yeah, classic yeah, ebm yeah. really classic ebm but like it's so kind of tied into that zone mm -hmm. of like classic ebm that mm -hmm. it's also going to sound as dated yeah. as classic ebm yeah. in a lot yeah. of ways um 
like a lot sooner in a, yeah. in, in a way that a lot of maybe not a lot of but in a way that a lot of like rhythmic noise or like kind of intentionally non-industrialism and dance music that kind of exists outside of that music did not kind of directly play right. into the EBM sound. Right, right. Yeah, it's interesting how like how techno music influenced by industrial music borrows so heavily from the EBM uh, blueprint, but a lot of quote-unquote industrial music that has nothing to do with techno but is still danceable has kind of forged its own just it just went down a completely different path my my, mm-hmm. my, my, my thing about ebm techno is a lot of it misses the key point about techno the techno already in the beginning was ebm techno ebm yeah. is already part of techno's genesis yeah Mills right. and you are were taking they were actually playing EBM from, records. yeah exactly i mean this wasn't yeah. a um, separate thing so it's it's one of those things where like like by by emphasizing those signifiers by by drawing on them so th- them so heavily you uh you're not kind of pushing techno in, in a new direction but you're you're actually just regressing it I, I of course you're weird. erasing like, like the context that shot off you know you're yeah. erasing the way in which techno grew naturally uh, out of EBM and then a, a bunch of other influences and you're just kind of cutting that off and, and, and going back. I mean, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. like you said, regressing. It's interesting to me to think about just yeah. listening to the conversation that we just had that ISO drift and like, especially Sako stuff is so minimal in its own way. And it's just interesting to think, what if minimal techno sounded like ISO drift and not like, not like minus. <laughs> well, we were just talking about it. Like, like it, like there was a window of, of kind of like the Berghain saga yeah, like that, 2007, 2008. I think so, it, up until at least 2010, 11, 12, like by the time that I was, you know, kind of aware of what was happening there. I just remember like an interview with Detman being like, yeah, you know, Bearkind, it's been open for a couple of years and, and, and man, it's just the best club in the world. You can, you can play you can, whatever you want. You can play whatever you want. And that's just playing some like fucked up Mika Vanio track at, you know, like peak time and everyone's just like <laughs> losing it. And you're like, holy shit, that sounds awesome. Try, and, try, try that now. <laughs> yeah, try that now, and that's it's not gonna right. Happen. Yeah, I pose this question though. I I brought it up because um, when we were listening to, was it the Obscurum track? Uh-huh. Obviously, or maybe it was the other more kick heavy um, I sub drift track that it did kind of remind me of like the um, early 2010s. What I thought of as the Berghain like sound, you know, which obviously it's strayed so f- far from that, I guess now. I'm not sure. You mean, yeah, yeah. You mean like the industrial techno sound, Katie? Is uh, it, is that yeah, yeah, like the sort of... Uh, hard, minimal, alien. Hard, minimal, alien, dark, vinyl-indebted mm. sort of... Um, <coughs> like that indebted. token records kind of sounding... Like, um, well, I wouldn't know, but... <laughs> you know, you know oh, token, like, 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 like Inigo Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Inigo Kennedy, perfect example. The Inigo Kennedy experiment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. T- t- ten bucks if you do a record under that name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wouldn't be any worse than the Inigo Kennedy um, Japanese guy alias that. Oh, he had oh geez, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Wait, what okay. is it? Uh, what uh, is it? T- like Tomito Satori. Tomito Satori, like, yes. I, I have a bunch of those records. They're good. 
they, they do they do knock like they're really fucking good. Wait, that's good. Inigo's like he's a Japanese? fake Japanese name. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was this was in '97 or something. So. Yeah. So that's just like uh... yeah, that's not a better time, really. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, that also brings us to, before we were like recording, we were kind of warming up the room. Uh, talking about that that kind of era of techno that is like that really functional like deeply rooted in like i guess a lot of people would probably would they probably dump that into like whatever like tribal is considered nowadays like yeah i mean it's like i mean all those records a lot of them i mean maybe they sound like a little i mean they probably sound like pretty dated but a lot of them are still very functionally like playable nowadays if you don't play an entire set of that stuff in 2019. What's wrong with that? No. I, I'll, I don't know. I'll happily play a set of nothing but, yeah, like Takaki Ito uh, and, uh, you know, Obscurum uh, side projects. That'd, that'd be great. Oh, I mean, like, you definitely could. I think it'd be... I, right I think context, it would be good, but, like, right I think it's a system. lot of... I think, well, techno audiences kind of maybe more now, at least in the United States, are not looking to hear one sound of techno the entire time. One sound of not even like jumping between like house and breakbeat and jungle and techno, but like one sound of like right, right. techno the entire time they're listening to it. I don't know. If if you go to like a party where drum cells playing, that's what you're going to get. <laughs> no, that is true. But like... Who knows what anyone wants cheese. anymore? It's impossible to tell. Yeah, I, don't, I think what I don't... we all want is cheese. <laughs> is that what brings us together? Yeah. Cheese a little bit? So Aaron, you <laughs> by day. Yes. Among other yeah, things. Yeah, by, but... by day I work, you know, at a grocery store and one of the other fermenting arts. Um so I brought some cheese in. Um because, you know, I, I feel like Sean, you've you've been able to talk about your love, your food love bread. Um a couple times on the pod. Well, um, only once, really. But. Only once in depth. Um, but you know, I, I figured since we have a we have a fellow cheesemonger here, um, we we would talk some cheese. This is a virtual cheese tasting. No, it's fun. What do, what do you bring? Let's. So let's uh, these these are just some favorites at the at the Park Slope Food Co-op. There's there's one I brought in which is called Soto Cenere, which is. Oh. You know yeah. it. Yeah. 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 That. Oh my God, that one's good. It's a very. <laughs> uh, I mean, well, I won't say anything, and I'll I'll let. I'll let the the the, re- the residents the audience uh, talk about it. Anything with truffle just really gets my vote and gets my goat. That's delicious and super snackable. So that is the what the Perlagregia Sotocinere from it's from like kind of mountain in mountainous Italy. Yeah, exactly. Um, um it's yeah, you know it's from truffle cheese. truffle country in Italy. Yeah. Yummy. Yeah. It's made by um I think only like one cooperative really makes a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a cheese made largely. One of my distributors told me this story about like how he went to the little like shed where they like manufacture the sottocinere because they largely do it in the winter time. It's, it's considered more of like a like a wintry cheese because it's got the crushed cloves and cinnamon bark and like ash, like birch tree ash on the rind. Yeah, exactly. For anyone who can't. Well. I don't know if right, anyone who can't see. <laughs> this is in the visual <laughs> for podcast. Everyone yeah. who can't um, see. So it's for a everyone, white semi-soft paste with yeah. um, flecks of real black truffles in I'd the like in the paste of it, and then the outside is co- coated in a um, 
birch ash that has been pulverized along with cinnamon bark and cloves. Hmm. Rochelle, does this conjure a, a very sort of winter? Beautiful, delicate cheese. It's really good with like sparkling, winter, um, sparkling whites and uh, rosé. Hmm. Well, so we're drinking an orange wine with it. Tell me, uh, Katie, you're Rochelle, you're drinking orangina. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where the wine. What I sense from this cheese is uh, there's there's like a temporality to the cheese. Yeah, yeah, it unfolds just in a couple stages. That, just know that for that cheese, of the four collective, I think farms that produce that cheese together, they like pool the resources of their various like cow's milk crop or like pasture, and like produce that cheese in the winter in this like shed that has just like this huge like molds that are just stink like fresh truffles it's it's like a scent uh it's like a totalizing like mm-hmm. olfactory experience apparently mm. um there it's, is it's, one, it's cynical there, cheese. There, yeah <laughs> there is one old italian lady who carries literally like a couple buckets of milk up the mountain in a little yolk and she is one of the people who contributes to that cheese you're eating right now so wow, wow. big ups to her <laughs> So yeah, we're, we're we are Shout pairing out. this currently. Awesome. Um, we're pairing this currently with a bottle of Alexander and Maria Kopich, um, kind of like a field blend. It, it uh, includes Griner Vetliner Sauvignon Blanc and Weissburgunder, aka Pinot Blanc. Um, it's from a very uh, limestone and sandy topsoil terroir. Where? Um, in, in Austria. In Austria, okay. Um, so yeah, it's a hand harvested, unfiltered. I, you know, I, I uh, I'm just mm-hmm. a drone at the at the Park Slope Food Co-op. I just, I just cut the cheese and 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 do what's required of me. But I, I can. Cut the I cut the yeah. cheese and do what's right. <laughs> yeah, but I can say that this one, uh, this one's a big, uh, this one's a very snackable offering. It's not the most, I love it. you know. Not the it's deepest cheese in the world, you know. It's not the most fascinating, but you know, it's, it's a party cheese. It's a party cheese. This one it's will get the party charge. That's a, that's a nice started. like. That's like if you're trying to like impress your mom. On yeah, oh, yeah, she's gonna love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The second cheese we have here. This is so ridiculous. Mm, this is cheese. <laughs> the second cheese we have here is. Uh, Everyone was so worried about what this podcast was gonna mean for like. Oh, like a bunch of white guys talking about techno. Like, and guess what? It's worse it than they be? thought. Can you guys exactly. imagine what the, um, forgive me if this like rubs people the wrong way. Can you imagine what the uh, fucking Sunday dinner at the Adam X Frankie Bones household is? Well, we're going to know. We're going to know because they'll be on the podcast and you know, we, we'll we, talk. We, we, will, we will have them on. Yeah. We'll even you go, should have their well, mom on. Presumably. Yeah, we, yeah, you know what? That's a good idea. We should have, we should have <laughs> them and, and their mom. We'll, we'll go down to Benson yeah. We'll make the trip. They're Nona. Yeah. Um, the second cheese we have here today is uh, Sonic Terre from France. Uh, I don't have. Okay. So. This is uh, honestly, I should have my 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 girlfriend should have come to introduce this cheese because she's the pro at at French cheeses and we can Google it. I am not, but it is it is a French cheese. It's smelly as shit. This one has Son been in our Son Hectare. Uh, this one. This one is Saint Nectar. Yeah. This one has been in my fridge for a while, so I scraped off some of the uh, you know, some of the uh, questionable bits on the on the side. And uh, we've got sort of the, 
to pure sonic tear here. Uh, so let's mm. let's get into that. Kind of reminds me of Telegio. Yeah. So we got wash run. There's a lot of chewing sounds. <laughs> yeah, that was some real smacking. <laughs> yeah. It's some real, like, fucking, it's like, me. like, Trevisano show. You know what? Like, it's me. Oh, that's a Midwest. Well, no, we, we, we keep joking about having an ASMR chewing episode. We're, well, we'll we're chewing on this, on this podcast. Katie we... should definitely do some ASMR natural wine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Have you guys seen those ones that are, you like, like aerate ASMR, the wine. like, role play, where they, they're, where they do, like, the, um, the like first class flight attendant ASMR role play. Whoa, That's it's really, really hot. twisted. And they talk about like they they. It, it's really weird. You know what? That, that would I want, really. I want, I want them to do um, an ASMR like giving you your hormone therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could do all these the, videos. You yeah, know? the first class flight attendant ASMR would really a- appeal to a certain subset of careerist DJs who uh, Ooh, you know burn. love their. Uh, Miles and things. Here's some ASMR natural wine. (laughs) Mm. Pineapple rind. (laughs) 